You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> Welcome to The Daily Briefing. It's Monday, January 11th. Soon, I'm going to be joined by Real Vision Managing Editor Ed Harrison. But first, with the day's stories, Haley Drasman. Hey, Jack. Market sentiment is dim on Monday. It's a modest reversal after last week's strong start to 2021 for equities. Investors are confronting a number of both political and regulatory risks. To start, Twitter fell after the social media platform permanently banned President Trump's account after last week's insurrection of the Capitol. This shows the company is making editorial decisions and opens the door to more regulation of social media under the Biden administration. Shares of Facebook, which also suspended Trump's account, also declined. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on the political front announced that the House may move to impeach President Trump as soon as this week. That's if Vice President Pence does not choose to invoke the 25th Amendment. Stimulus efforts might be slowed as a result of this, and last week's rise in the markets was really attributed on bets that the Biden administration would push another round of aid under the Democratic-controlled Congress. We saw the dollar up Monday, which has been lifted since U.S. Treasury yields rose last week. Again, this was on bets that the Democratic-controlled Congress would mean more stimulus for the U.S. economy feeding into inflation and an uptick in economic growth. With the 10-year Treasury note yield logging its largest weekly rise since June, the move in yields could prompt investors to really rethink 2021 strategies. Yields, which move in the opposite direction of bond prices, edged a bit higher on Monday. It's interesting, with the dollar up, Bitcoin is seeing its first major correction of 2021, selling off over 25% from its high of nearly 42000 at the end of last week. As major institutions seem to be increasing their appetite for the flagship cryptocurrency, they really need the banks open in order to allocate capital into this market. It could be important to pay closer attention to how Bitcoin trades during the week versus on the weekends when the banks are closed. Time will only tell if the crypto market finds this near-term support. And, you know, in the near term, speaking of, there's a very real and present danger that the U.S. could double dip in the first quarter. We saw the first signs of that with Friday's jobs report. There were 140,000 job cuts in December and a shocking gender gap was revealed. Women accounted for all of those job losses, losing 156,000 jobs while men gained 16,000. This, of course, signals the U.S. economy is backtracking. Bottom line, it feels like 2020 hasn't really ended. We're in the middle of a pandemic still, and we're continuing to talk about U.S. politics maybe now more than before. The underlying story is still pretty much the same. Back to you, Jack. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thanks, Haley. Welcome, Ed. Yeah, good to talk to you as usual, Jack. Yeah, great to have you on the Daily Briefing and great to be here. Um, Ed, so what did you make of today's market action? We had uh, stocks down, all three major indices down. The bond market was, you know, yields actually uh, increased a little bit, which is confounding. Um, and then we had a big, massive, you know, massive sell-off in crypto. Um, what, what do you make of that today? Yeah, you know, actually, I, I would almost say it's not confounding. When yields go up, finally, uh, equities, uh, they're reacting to that. But the the big moves are gold on Friday, and then now we have uh, crypto selling off. To be honest with you, I feel like markets have been overheated. And, uh, you know, really, there's no news. I saw what David Rosenberg was writing. He was like, interestingly, you get bad news from the ADP and you get bad news from the Labor Department, but markets are up. And then on no news over the weekend, we get the markets down. So who knows what's driving them in the short term. But from my perspective, it's good to have, take a breather because markets have been overheated uh, to the upside. And that makes the potential for an air pocket uh, of significant measure much greater. Right. Um, so you said that markets are getting a little bit overheated. Um, we've got a chart here, which is the price to sales ratio of the three major indices going back all to uh, 2000. And it now is the case that the price to sales ratio, meaning the market capitalization relative to the amount of revenue um, of these companies that are uh, in the indices are at all time highs. Um, so needless to say, Ed, to use one of your favorite words, things are getting a little bit bubblicious. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that uh, the, the all-time highs for uh, price to sales makes a lot of sense to think about that as being bubblicious because obviously the only way that that works is if you're thinking profit margins are going to increase. And we know that profit margins had increased and they've remained relatively elevated uh, at a minimum uh, from a non-GAAP perspective. And so the potential that they could go even higher, especially during a pandemic, is limited. So I think uh, record price to sales is a sign that things are at, at a high level. I mean, you could try to say, hey, look, it's the, uh, it's the DCF stupid, uh, meaning that uh, when the the rates go, and by the way, I got this from Holger Schaefer. That's a great little line. It's the DCF stupid. We can go into that a little bit. But, you know, when bond yields are so low, then you can get away with that. Yeah, Ed, that's a really interesting uh, chart for all those who are listening uh, to this as a podcast. Uh, on the left axis, we have the uh, FANG index shooting up from July to uh, July 2020 to uh, now. And we also have the U.S. 10-year yields shooting up as well. Uh, they mirror each other pretty closely. And Ed, this actually surprised me because the typical logic is that as yields uh, decrease, um, you know, that makes it more attractive to own uh, companies whose cash flows are well into the future, such as the ones in the, in the FANG. So therefore, so I would expect it to have a little bit of a V rather than have uh, these charts sort of follow each other so closely. Yeah, it is amazing. I think what it boils down uh, to is that uh, there's something amiss. You know, so when Holger Schaefer says it's the DCF stupid, and you see a chart where 10-year yields are rising and uh, stocks are rising, especially stocks that have supposedly profits into the future, you do wonder what that, uh, what's going on there. So 
to me, this is a sign that uh, we, we don't have all the answers because I agree with you, Jack. It should be the opposite. Right. And just uh, connecting this to what you said earlier, I said the bond market action was confounding. You said uh, not so fast, Jack. And this kind of goes through there, there are two opposing forces because when the bond market sells off and yields rise, that means that there's liquidity that was in the bond market and now it's out of the bond market. Where's it going to go? Most likely, you know, a, a good portion of it is going to go into the stock market. So that's, uh, you know, typical uh, uh, when bonds yields rise, you have stocks rise with them. But on a longer term chart, um, you'd expect there to be uh, so, uh, a, a more structural effect of investors saying, hey, uh, you know, yields are uh, so high, um, you know, I'm going to go buy bonds and then sell uh, the, the FANG. Or yields are so low, I'm going to park my money out of bonds and put them into uh, uh, you know, uh, companies whose cash flows are, are projected well into the future. Um, would you agree with what I just said, how there are these sort of uh, two different forces that, that oppose each other? And, and if so, what, what do you make of them? Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, you're talking about, uh, in effect, a rotation play between assets. You know, like when you talk about the 60-40, you know, the 60-40 moving to a 65-35 or a 55-45 um, a ratio so that money moving out of one market is going into the other. And that's what's impacting. So when bonds sell off, and meaning yields go up, then also equities uh, should go up at the same time. That's what we are seeing with this FANG stock. But over the longer term, uh, you know, when bond yields rise, the discount rate uh, rises. So when Holger Shapitz writes, uh, it's the DCF stupid, what he's saying is the discounted cash flows of companies that have a lot of their cash flows with, uh, you know, five or 10 years out, then you're looking at the net present value of those cash flows being diminished when those bond yields rise. So the DCF is getting worse when bond yields go up. So I would think everything else being equal over time, that's a, a headwind for stocks. Uh, right. And uh, just for, for the folks at home, um, could you quickly explain what you mean when you say uh, uh, companies that have cash flows well into the future? And, and you know, just to pick two companies that are at the polar end of the, the spectrum, let's say Tesla versus a you know a, a mining company. Um, you know, what yeah, are the or different... Berkshire Hathaway because Berkshire there Hathaway, was a point. So yeah, I think if you look at those two com companies, uh, Berkshire and uh, and you look at Tesla, Berkshire basically. If you make you, they're making tons of money today, and in 2021 they're making a ton of money. They're going to make it in 2022 and then 2023, and relatively speaking, not that much more in 2028. So, from a discounted cash flow perspective, much more of the money that they're making is in the here and now, uh, relative to the future. But then you look at a Tesla as an example. They're not really making a whole lot of money at all relative to their market capitalization. You know, they, both Tesla and Berkshire have about the same market capitalization. So really, in order to justify that market capitalization, all of the uh, cash flows that need to be discounted to the present are way into the future. That's when they're going to make much, much more money according to the discounted cash flow model that they have. And that money has to be discounted back to the future to put it in net present value terms. So obviously, uh, the higher the discount factor is, the worse those cash flows look. So if money 
is uh, low, that is, if, if interest rates are low, then uh, that's good. But when interest rates go up, then the discounted cash flows uh, go down. Right. I think that's a great explanation. Thanks, Ed. And just talking about interest rates going up, um, you, we look at a chart of the U.S. 10-year uh, Treasury real rate, so that's adjusting for inflation. And uh, you know, since the beginning of the new year, it has inched up. Um, it's now uh, higher than uh, negative uh, uh, one. Um, and you know, you look at the U.S. dollar index, and it's closely um, matched matched onto there. Um, what do you make of uh, you know? Number one, nominal yields rising, and then number two, what happens if that real rate uh, rises as well? You know, I think that this is where the gold comes into play more than anything else, because there's a term that people used to use a lot called financial repression, and that's this term that started when QE was big in the first uh, great financial crisis, that last recession that we had when QE was first being used, that when you're suppressing yields, you're creating so-called financial repression by uh, making it so that people can't earn any money. And that means negative real yields. That means that after inflation, I'm not making any money. Actually, I'm losing money. Uh, and that is what people think of when they think of financial repression. Uh, when you look at owning gold, which isn't earning a yield, the penalty of owning gold, which you have to store, uh, you know, it, there's a cost associated with that. And then that you're not earning any any interest on that. The penalty isn't there. In fact, it's actually to your benefit relative to interest rates where you're losing money after inflation to own gold. And so that makes gold and other precious metals interesting in those cases. But when your real yields are starting to rise, then gold is relatively speaking less attractive because the financial repression has decreased and that therefore the advantage you have of holding gold goes away. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, Ed, would you say that's true about most commodities since they have a negative uh, carry, so to speak? In other words, if I chop down lumber and I have lumber in my backyard, I'm not getting any yield on my lumber until I sell it. I mean, it's not yield. You're, you're, it's capital appreciation. It's the price. Um, but it does cost money. I do have to say buy a little rack to store the wood. Uh, in case, you know, in the case of ExxonMobil, you have to pay companies like Scorpio Tankers to store your oil. That's why we had the problem, uh, you know, last year in, in April um, when, uh, you know, the, the, the price of storage was greater than the price of the oil itself. So so the price of oil um, dipped. Um, Ed, would you say that what you said about uh, gold, would that be true about all commodities more broadly? I think, yeah, it is true. But you know, all of the dynamics that you were talking to make a lot of sense in terms of the supply and demand. You know, the supply and demand of gold certainly is there. People talk about that with, you know, the need for jewelry in, in places like India and places like that. And when you talk about silver, you're talking about the industrial use of silver as well. But ultimately, gold is a store of value. People think of it as money. And so, therefore, these monetary aspects are much more important than they are in commodities where the commodities are being used and there's a supply and demand element for, uh, associated with them. And that's the thing that is really the biggest driver. Right. Um, Ed, gold has uh, been thought of as a hedge against inflation or a hedge against, hedge against currency depreciation. Um, over the past year, we've seen that Bitcoin has become all too common um, when discussing 
uh, things like hedges against inflation. And people say, oh, I I'm going to sell my gold. I want to own Bitcoin. Um, obviously, Bitcoin has been on a tremendous uh, tear over the past year. Um, but today we had a mighty sell off. At one point it was down. I saw 22 percent. It has had a little bit of a rally. Uh, it's now only down 9 percent at, at about the $34,000 level. Um, Ethereum has followed suit. I haven't follow the other cryptos, but I, I assume that they are. They generally are extremely correlated to each other in my experience. Um, what do you make of the sell-off in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum today? Yeah, uh, I thought it was pretty interesting, you know, uh, in the sense that uh, Bitcoin's supposed to be an uncorrelated asset. And by the way, you know, before I even start talking about this, let me say, let me just give a shout out to you and Max, because I know for a fact that you and Max are going to be doing the RVDB next week on Monday, because that's uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr., uh, the holiday, and we're going to be closed, and you're going to do an AMA, if I'm right, and you're actually going to be talking about Bitcoin, because the two of you are a little different in terms of how you think about crypto? Yes, I, I'd say that's right, yeah. Yeah, so uh, you're, you're doing the AMA, uh, you're taping it sometime later this week, and and you guys are, are have a different uh, opinion. I mean, my opinion on the whole uh, Bitcoin phenomenon is that uh, it's supposed to be an uncorrelated asset. You know, it's a hedge against fiat currency more broadly. But you know, it's not a uh, a guarantee to insta wealth. Uh, what concerns me is that you know when you have Tesla going up like eight times and Bitcoin going up four times in the same year, you're at a point in the economic cycle in the financial markets where that uncorrelation has diminished, where actually it's, you know, the reason that you own Tesla is exactly the opposite reason that you own Bitcoin. You own Bitcoin because bad things are going to happen and fiat currency, you need a hedge against it. You own Tesla because you think that, you know, Everything is is hunky dory, and Tesla is going to benefit, and you want to get in there. When those two are going up together, that tells you that you are in a place that where Bitcoin is not uncorrelated, and that concerns me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Uh, Ed, I think that is such a good point. Now, I, um, perhaps unlike you, am, am someone who believes that Bitcoin does have a place um, in, your, in your portfolio, uh, a relatively small place based on, based on its volatility. But I believe um, that it, it does have an attractive risk uh, reward profile. Um, if you just look at its, its history, it, as, as Mike Green said, and Mike is the ultimate Bitcoin skeptic, he said, I've never doubted its ability to go up. Now, do I uh, believe the sort of lofty claims of people who think that it's going to become a global reserve asset? Probably not. I think that uh, it's, you know, the most likely outcome is that it goes down a tremendous amount. But I think that in the a rare option in which it, it does, I think it will go on such a tear that it's basically an asymmetric bet. So it will have the uh, uh, payout uh, relative to, a, it will be long volatility. However, that doesn't mean that it's going to be same have the same correlations that other long volatility bets uh, will have. For example, the S&P 500 uh, 
the mere, the opposite, exact opposite bet of the S&P 500 is going short the S&P 500, or uh, another version of that is buying a put option. If you, if the S&P goes up, your put option decreases in value, uh, unless implied volatility spikes, which happened in March. But, um, but if it goes down, you you make money. So that is essentially, um, you know, lock lockstep, pretty much. It's pretty close. Um, I think the claim that Bitcoin is not correlated to other financial assets. Um, I, I, I too have a little bit of doubt with that. One thing I don't have a doubt about is that uh, all the cryptos trade remarkably uh, similar to each other. Um, if, if Bitcoin's down 10% and you look at the other ones in market caps, you're going to be seeing a lot of red. Maybe one green, maybe one green here, but you're going to be seeing uh, a lot of red. Um, and we actually have a chart here of uh, the one-day return of Bitcoin versus the one-day return of gold. Uh, Bitcoin is in the um, is in the red. So today uh, it was down 20%. That was the worst sell-off we've seen since March. Again, I made this chart about two to three hours earlier. It is now only down 9%. Although Bitcoin, excuse me, Ethereum remains down 20%. So as you can see, uh, it, it trades somewhat similar to gold in that it's it's an inflation hedge, but it's just the peaks and valleys are just magnified so much. So um, Ed, sorry, I, I know I've been I've been talking for so long, but um, my brother actually asked me. Uh, if he should buy Bitcoin the other day, um, and I told him no because he's you know that if that would be his first investment of his life, and I don't think he's ready for that level of uh, volatility. Um, however, I think that people who are prepared to accept the risk, uh, I think it, it will have a favorable risk reward profile. You just wanted to keep all the gains to yourself. You wanted to keep them out. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> You know, uh, what, what I would say is, is the, actually, I, uh, people like your brother, I do have a certain degree of fear of, the, of, of them entering the market at the bubble stages of a market, you know, that's uh, where you, you see valuations that are unjustified in equities and then going into Bitcoin and, you know, with the same sort of mentality. You know, that's not the atmosphere for Bitcoin to do well in and, and for the volatility to dampen. You know, Bitcoin's volatility actually had been coming down uh, over a period of time, uh, it only to reawaken as a result of the, uh, the speculative mania that you see in shares, you know, spilling over into Bitcoin. But eventually, you know, when the bubble bursts, um, the question is, is where will Bitcoin be? After that happens, you know, a year later, two years later, I, that's that's really when we'll know more about cryptocurrencies in general, because that's when it'll be completely divorced from uh, the the uh, the speculation that's going on in other financial assets. Yeah, I, I may add that um, you know what what Raul has said about the institutional wall of money uh, has largely come true. We've seen. Uh, you know, not just micro strategy, but Anthony Scaramucci's fund, um, you know, JP Morgan wants to, you know, Wash Mutual, um, that wall of money has come. And guess what? The only Bitcoin that they can buy is is, is from the Grayscale, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And that's why the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust often trades at such a premium, uh, uh, sometimes as high as 30, 40%, which is very rare for ETFs, um, to the underlying price of Bitcoin. I think one uh, uh, consequence of the institutional wall of money coming in is now that they're subject to the volatility of financial markets. You know, there didn't used to be contagion. Oh, uh, 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 you know, Google was down 12% today. Um, who cares? Because Bitcoin is all owned by retail. They don't really own Google. You know, this price of a share is $1,700. It's not really correlated. But now it's owned by Anthony Scaramucci's fund. Oh, 
you know, he allocates to other funds, they own Google. That's going to have a difference. That's going to make an impact. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, um, correlations go up uh, at various times. And for me, the the bottom line for this whole conversation is 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 that as you move towards uh, you know price movements that are two and three standard deviations along the curve the the uh, of possible outcomes, you get more and more into the area where people are just like, oh, you know what? Uh, it, it pays to speculate in this other asset class as well. And so those correlations start to tend to cluster. And uh, that's where we are right now. Mm. Yeah, um, Ed, we're, we're nearing to a close. So I, I was going to ask you, you know, what, what are your sort of uh, trades that you have on your horizon? I'm going to gather it's, it's not going to be Bitcoin. So if it's not Bitcoin, you know, what, what do you have your eye on? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, 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 um, a bond market kind of guy. So I'm watching, uh, the, and I'm not going to say, I'm, I'm not going to give you any trades per se, but uh, I'm watching uh, uh, two or three different things. One, I'm watching uh, tips versus uh, uh, normal treasuries. I think that that's an interesting gauge in terms of understanding where sentiment is in terms of inflation and inflation expectations. I'm looking at the actual you know, level of, tre- of treasuries. I think it is interesting that we hit 110 today. And the question is, is how much further can we go up before people start crying? It's the DCF stupid. I think that that chart that you saw uh, where you saw uh, Apple and the FANG stocks all going up together with uh, yields, if that breaks down, that correlation goes away at some point in time. We knew that it was like 3% back uh, during the, the tantrum that we had uh, in 2018. How much is it going to be now? Is it 1.5%? It's not far away from where we are now. I don't think we can go that much that much higher. And then the last one, of course, is uh, investment grade versus high yield. But to me, the rubber hits the road in the in those three areas. One is the absolute level of yield. Two is inflation adjusted yields versus uh, nominal yields, and three is investment grade versus high yield. Those are the three areas that I'm looking at. Interesting. Uh, Ed, can I get your take on investment grade versus high yield, where, where you sort of fall out on? Because I definitely have my own thoughts. What, what are you thinking? Yeah, there? I think that when we, t- when we talk about the look through and equities, uh, we're going to see it first and foremost in terms of high yield versus investment grade, meaning that uh, if you look at it, bankruptcies have been relatively low. I've seen figures that say that bankruptcies this year have been much lower than anticipated. And so the question is, is if we get this uh, this wave that we're going through now becoming worse and we have a lockdown, is it going to get worse in terms of bankruptcies or are we going to be able to look through this period to the post vaccine period and therefore it pays to stay in high yield because of the excess return? So that's that's what I'm thinking that high yield wins in a case where you can reasonably look through to the other side. If you can't look through to the other side, it's going to be a credit event and high yield will suffer and it will suffer at the same time or before equity suffer because that's when the defaults will start happening. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think there's an opportunity 
um, in long quality equities and short high yield. I just I didn't look at credit spreads today, um, but you know high yield uh, spreads are just so low. And it's not that I'm as an investor unwilling to lend to the high yield market and unwilling to take those risks. It's just that you know four percent, five percent. Like if I invested in the high yield bond market and I and I win and I get five percent. I, I could barely buy the balloons to throw a party to celebrate. <laughs> it's just yeah. not enough for me, you know, 5%. But, you know, at the same time, the question is, is how much volatility are we going to see in those yields going forward with uh, the Fed uh, intervening, with, you know, fiscal policy potentially levitating uh, the ability of the economy to, to make it through? I'm open to the concepts that... Uh, uh, we're not going to see another um, uh, hiccup the way that we saw in March 2020. But generally speaking, I'm on the other side of that. So I, I would agree with you, but I'm open to the concept that it doesn't happen that way, that we actually do have a, a um, you know, we get to the other side without any sort of volatility. I think it's possible that the Federal Reserve's track record in suppressing volatility and uh, you know, boosting asset prices uh, is impeccable over the past year. So you could be right, Ed. Unfortunately. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Ed. It's been a pleasure as always. Yeah, I love talking to you, Jack. It's been great. It's been great. Thanks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.